Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio Westeros, House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 8, The Lord of the Tides. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's great to be here to talk about the eighth episode of House of the Dragon called Lord of the Tides. Today we'll be reacting to and evaluating this episode as well as making plenty of book comparisons because we are fans of the books but we'll avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon and we're going to have a spoiler section near the end and we'll give you a giant heads up for that. So whatever your Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones background we have a lot to offer tonight. In this episode, there was a significant time jump from last week of more than six years. So far in House of the Dragon, we've had episodes revolving around a tourney, a hunt, a wedding, a funeral. And the showrunners described this week's episode as the hospice episode. Rhaenyra, Damon, and family were visiting the Red Keep to straighten out the succession struggle developing on Driftmark, but at the heart of the episode was the tail end of Viserys' decline as his long period of suffering from a leprosy-esque wasting disease reaches its conclusion. Being king, though, Viserys got little solace in his dying days as important political matters still needed to be addressed. Last week, focused on the tensions and violence between a new generation of characters who have inherited some of the conflict laid down by their parents. And this week, we saw those children more grown up and becoming young adults. With all the recastings and time jumps, at last, House of the Dragon has really reached its final form. Given that the only thing holding the piece together was the ailing Viserys, his death at the end of the episode is highly significant in that it will surely begin a crisis of succession. Before we get ahead of ourselves though, there's so much to analyse in this episode as we put Viserys' final deeds under the microscope. So with much to say, can't wait to get into more depth, let's say hello to my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn. Hello. Good evening. Welcome, everyone. Hello, Emily. Welcome back. Hi. Glad to be back. Hi. Yeah. Lots to talk about tonight. My word. This was an emotional episode, was it not? I cried a lot. 
Acting was top-notch as usual. And uh, so, yeah, like your boy said, we have a lot to talk about. But before we begin our analysis, uh, we want to mention that Radio Westeros is supported by our patrons. And if you want to be a patron or find out more about the benefits of being a patron, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio Westeros. And we'll begin, as usual, with a quick shout-out to our flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Crispy, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltude, John Wergarian, and M.T. Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Dab Hot Dog Shop, house motto, We Forge the Chains We Wear in Life. Actually, I'm going to get us started this evening. We uh, open the episode at High Tide, one of my favorite filming locations, which I think I say every time we talk about it. Uh, we have Princess Rainies receiving news about her husband Corlys with her granddaughter Bela by her side. In the very first sentence of the episode, I thought this was very cleverly done. Before the character is even on the screen, it's still black screen, uh, we learn two facts. Corlys has been away for six years, which gives us the time jump, more than six years. Uh, and now he has been gravely wounded. This news comes to us from Maester Kelvin, who we last saw, last saw stitching up Aemond and Rhaenyra after the brawl in episode seven. Uh, comes via a raven from Evenfall, the island home of House Tarth. And as Rhaenys orders preparations to be made to receive her wounded husband just in just a few days... Uh, whose survival, by the way, is by no means guaranteed, his younger brother Vaemon steps forward. And as Rainey sits the Driftwood throne in Corlys's absence, Vaemon wants to know who will sit there if Corlys dies. Rhaenys declares that the matter has been decided. Corlys wants his grandson Lucerys to succeed him, but Vaemon is a truth speaker, as we'll see uh, a couple times in this episode and really just can't hold themselves back from speaking something that Rhaenys reminds him could be considered treason. Vaiman shifts gears and accuses his absent brother of bringing calamity after calamity down upon their house with his ambition. And Rhaenys reminds Vaiman again that the king, emphasizing that he's her cousin, would have his tongue for such talk. Uh, but Vaymond counters that the king does not sit the throne in King's Landing. The queen does. The winds have shifted, he says, and it's clear that House Hightower has gained ascendancy in the capital. And uh, Vaymond intends to capitalize on that. And that's where we leave High Tide. Yoke boy. Yes. Yeah, so from there, we then go to Dragonstone. And there's this long and wonderful CGI shot going over the sea and the castle and up to the volcano. The volcano is called Dragonmont. The dragons obviously love the heat and the environment. And we see why Dragonstone is therefore such a suitable seat for Targaryens and their dragons. And when you have happy dragons and the conditions are right, then you get clutches of eggs, which of course are invaluable. One man who definitely understands their value is Daemon Targaryen, and we see him scaling rocks and sliding down crevices to look for eggs. And yes, he finds a clutch and cuts through a layer of goop with a rock hammer to get to the eggs. I thought this was a great little sequence because we get to see Dragonmont and how the eggs look freshly laid. All in all, 
a nice touch that gives us some insight about the process of birthing dragons, and I thought it added to the world building. In the books, Cyrax lays several clutches of eggs during the time of King Viserys, including a clutch that more or less lines up on the timeline with this one. Dragon's eggs are a tricky business, though. Here we see Daemon insist that they be put in a warming chamber, and we know that Targaryens try to form a bond with the eggs, but there does seem to be a hit-or-miss random element to the eggs actually hatching, and this is all part of the mystery of dragons. And as Daemon gives the eggs to the dragon tamers, they deliver a message that's just arrived from Lady Baylor on Driftmark. So we had a look at it, and roughly it reads... Father, I write with news of Uncle Vaymond, who this moment sails for King's Landing. He plans to petition His Grace the King on matters of succession, rights, and the sanctity of blood. He wishes for the Driftwood Throne to pass to him that is his by rights, and that he is the only unattainted choice. Bela. After this, we get a quick scene with Rhaenyra and uh, two of her sons, focusing primarily on Jace. He's practicing High Valyrian, but he's struggling. Rhaenyra sees this and is gentle with him. She's clearly proud of him, but also doesn't, you know, doesn't want him to beat himself up over it. Reminds him it takes a little bit more time than just a day to perfect this. This little vignette is, I think, meant to contrast how little Aegon seems to care to prepare for his eventual rule. We'll see how much time Aegon spends preparing versus other activities soon. Um, and we got a little bit of that last episode as well. We're interrupted by Damon, who brings the news that Yoke just told us about, about the Valyrian succession. The two, uh, Rhaenyra and Damon, immediately get down to business, ready to head out to King's Landing. Uh, not only does this issue threaten Luke's claim to Driftmark, but it also again brings up Rhaenyra and Jace's place in the, in the succession to the Iron Throne. Yeah, I agree that scene of Jaceris at his lessons, uh, especially contrasted with later scenes of, with Aegon in, in this episode, really put me in mind of the contrast that was drawn by Varys in A Dance with Dragon between Aegon, a.k.a. Young Griff, and Tom and Baratheon, which actually, for what it's worth, is equally applicable, if not more so, to Tommen's older brother Joffrey. Varys told Kevin Lannister, Aegon has been shaped for rule since before he could walk. He's been trained in arms, as befits a knight to be, but that was not the end of his education. He reads and writes, he speaks several tongues, he has studied history and law and poetry. A septa has instructed him in the mysteries of the faith since he was old enough to understand them. He has lived with fisher folk, worked with his hands, swum in rivers, and mended nets and learned to wash his own clothes at need. He can fish and cook and bind up a wound. He knows what it is like to be hungry, to be hunted, and to be afraid. Tommen has been taught that kingship is his right. Aegon knows that kingship is his duty, that a king must put his people first and live and rule for them. So this characterization of the two sides of the House of the Dragon thus far seems to um, really lean into this contrast. You've got Rhaenyra's children, who I feel like are being shown to be fairly wholesome, polite, well-educated. Uh, Jaceris in particular being taught uh, about his duty and, you know, prepared to be uh, a king one day versus basically what appeared to be, at least for the males, you know, entitled and violent uh, individuals on the other side. Poor Helena, we'll leave her out of this. Uh, she's another thing altogether. She's fey and gentle and she doesn't quite seem to belong anywhere. 
Uh, we'll get back to her later. Let's uh, move over to King's Landing. Yeah, we next see Rhaenyra and her family arriving at the Red Keep, being announced by Kingsguard Sir Stephen Darklin. Uh, much like the lackluster reception that Viserys received at Driftmark years ago, Rhaenyra and her family are received only by Lord Caswell. You may remember him offering Rhaenyra congratulations on the birth of Joffrey in episode six. Immediately we see this branch of Viserys' family is not welcomed by the other, who now control the court in the king's name. Upon entering, Damon and Rhaenyra immediately remark on how unrecognizable the Red Keep has become, with Alicent seemingly taking over decorating duties. Instead of the Targaryen tapestries and the erotic art, there is religious iconography everywhere. While the Targaryens did adopt the Faith of the Seven when Aegon I conquered the Seven Kingdoms, it was oft seen, or later seen, as more of a savvy political choice meant to gain the Faith's support, rather than necessarily a true and strong devotion. The timing of the change of the artwork suggests that it is driven by the Hightower influence. Oh yeah, definitely. We've talked quite a bit throughout this season about Alicent's uh, devotion to the Faith of the Seven, starting in episode two when she teaches Rhaenyra how to pray in the Great Sept. So it's obvious that Alicent has been raised in the Faith. Rhaenyra, maybe not so much. Uh, A little bit of background on House Hightower actually underscores the significance of these changes. They are a truly ancient house. It's rumored that the Hightowers um, might predate first men in Westeros, Uh, Over the centuries, from their fortress at the mouth of the Honeywine River, they've become not only one of the richest and most influential houses, uh, first in the Kingdom of the Reach and later in the Seven Kingdoms itself, but they were also one of the first Westerosi houses to embrace the faith that the Andals brought to their shores from Essos. House Hightower funded the foundation of the Starry Sept and the office of the High Septon and soon became one of the premier houses supporting and defending the faith, which was centered in their own city of Old Town. The Targaryens, on the other hand, brought their own religion from Valyria, and like Anne said, the Aegon allowed himself to be anointed at the Starry Sept during his conquest. It's obvious in House of the Dragon that many of his descendants uh, do keep to their old Valyrian traditions. So this iconography of the Seven dominating the Red Keep is truly shorthand for a Hightower ascendancy in the capital. And speaking of which, let's check in with the very Hightower-dominated Small Council. Yeah, you know, here's where we first see Allison, and uh, she's garbed in very conservative clothing now. I mean, fabric up to the neck, uh, wearing this massive seven-pointed star pendant. The message delivered by the religious symbolism that we've seen is reinforced. She's sitting in Viserys' chair in the small council chamber. The scene opens with an elderly Lord Beesbury, master of coin, at the end of what seems like probably a long-winded accounting. As an unabashed Lyman Beesbury fan, I feel bad for the old man. I mean, his job as the realm's accountant seems to be a pretty thankless one these days. And we even see shades of Ned Stark wondering why the crown's coin is being spent on tourneys and festivals with that mention of the Festival of the Mother and a very expensive related bronze bust. Allison seems beyond over whatever he's saying and is about ready to come down on him with a reminder when she's interrupted. Lord Commander Harold Westerling shows up to confirm the arrival of Rhaenyra and company, and Otto tells us that he's the one who instructed that not-so-warm welcome. Westerling's downcast eyes and Alicent's quick glance at her father make it clear that not everyone is entirely comfortable with this break from protocol. Surely Rhaenyra's station as heir to the Iron Throne would have merited a little bit more of a welcome than that. 
Next, the Valarian succession crisis is discussed by the small council, uh, and it's a perfect topic to give us a taste of everyone's personal opinions. The new-ish, I guess uh, he hasn't had much screen time yet, Grandmaster Orwile reminds the group that the current Lord Valarian uh, wishes Luke to succeed him. Master of Ships Tylan Lannister is quick to call that into question, reminding us that House Lannister is sided with the Greens following the rejection that Tylan's twin, Jason, received from Princess Rhaenyra. Lannisters are famous for their pride, of course, so it makes sense that they would hold this grudge nearly two decades later. Beesbury pipes up that, you know, ability to lead a fleet doesn't necessarily alter Luke's claims, and with that, the reason for Allison's disdain towards him becomes a bit clearer. Ironically, ability does not alter his claim would make a great argument for Aegon, but I digress. There's more back and forth amongst the council, very few of them here seeming sympathetic to the idea of Luke as heir. Alicent shuts down the infighting and says the crown, which is shorthand for her and her father, will hear out claimants tomorrow before she exits the meeting chambers. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the Diana scene, so a quick trigger warning for the next like minute. I'll keep it brief. Alison is shown dealing with a situation that has risen with her son Aegon and his children's nursemaid, a serving girl called Diana, her son, sexually assaulted the young woman. Now we understand why they had that window scene earlier in the season. And Aegon clearly sees himself as above not only other people, but any moral code as well. While Alison is outwardly kind to the girl, she doesn't give her much choice with the moon tea there. Incidentally, the, the revelation that Diana is a nursemaid is how we ascertain that Aegon and Helena are now married with children, though we have yet to hear their names mentioned. So the scene ends with Alicent being angry with her son, telling him, you're no son of mine, and him protesting that he's done what she asked in spite of never wanting any of it, setting up a possible reluctance on his part to challenge his sister's succession. Not to mention leaving the viewer with the ugly impression that this character is far from worthy of being Viserys' successor. Correct. Yes, definitely have that impression. While this is all going on, the first thing Rhaenyra and Daemon do when they get into the Red Keep, apparently, is seek out Viserys in his chambers. Uh, Echoing their very muted reception, Viserys' chambers feel deserted. Uh, There's very low light. The king's model city is sadly covered in dust and cobwebs, and it's obvious that the days of him sitting before it tinkering endlessly are long over. Rhaenyra finds her father in a curtained bed, and the change since we last saw him is completely shocking. He is a living skeleton, he has his head bandaged for an as-yet-unknown reason, and both Rhaenyra and Daemon are visibly moved by the change here. Uh, the, The love that they each have for him is quite obvious. But finding his brother awake and aware, Damon cuts to the chase and starts telling Viserys the reason for their visit. Although he's obviously uncomfortable doing so, he kind of stammers and stumbles on his words. I think this is probably the only time we've seen Damon anything other than fully self-possessed, including that time he was lying on the floor of the throne room being um, kicked around by his older brother. But when Viserys appears confused by the details... Rhaenyra changes tack and brings in her two youngest sons to meet their grandfather. 
Aegon and Viserys uh, appear to delight the king, especially his namesake. But then he suffers a sudden pain and he asks Damon for his tea, which turns out to be milk of the poppy. And of course, Damon is nobody's fool and realizes that his brother is being kept sedated with this very, very strong narcotic. And while his condition indicates that there's a need for something, uh, you know, it's still a cause for concern, given that this leaves the ruling of the realm and the day-to-day decision-making in the hands of Alicent and Otto. And to talk about the books in Fire and Blood, regarding the king's final illness, it says gout, chest pains, and shortness of breath continue to trouble the king. In the final years of his reign, as his health failed, Viserys left ever more of the governance of the realm to his hand and small council. So in keeping with his personality, he was a lover of feasts and entertainments. Book for series suffers from ailments that come from overindulgence and general lack of fitness. He's out of shape with gout and heart problems. Fire and Blood Viserys seems almost as though he's given up. House of the Dragon Viserys is different. He's suffering with a much more serious illness. He's in great pain and parts of himself are literally falling off and rotting away. Damon and Rhaenyra are discussing how to help, perhaps bringing Maester Gerardus from Dragonstone when Alicent arrives. Yeah, Alicent enters the room, having dealt with the situation, and Rhaenyra initially is quite courteous, but Damon doesn't restrain himself from the get-go from commenting on their lack of reception. And then the subject of Alicent ruling in the king's name comes up, and Damon challenges her again on his brother's condition, on how it's been handled, and on her own motivations. And this scene really struck me as much as Alicent has grown into her role as queen. It is really impossible here uh, to forget that Damon has much more history and experience with his brother and with the crown and the Red Keep and the Game of Thrones in general. Uh, He just really owns uh, this exchange. Uh, Both Rhaenyra and Damon are expressing their indignation over the state of affairs, and Damon offers another challenge on the the changes in the decor and the heraldry. He wants to know why all the visible symbols of Targaryen power have been replaced by stars and statues, things that are uh, undoubtedly far more indicative of Hightower presence than Targaryens. Alicent is quite cool, and she speaks of the guidance of the faith and higher authority. She also makes it clear that uh, she and her father will have the deciding temporal authority on the matter of the Valerian inheritance uh, on the next day. In all of Alicent's scenes to this point, we see her as a very changed woman. Her dress and her hair are demure, almost severe, and this is a real contrast with the flowing hair, uh, furs, and bright colors that we've seen from her in previous episodes, including the very last one. So combined with the changes of the decor in the Red Keep and her manner in citing the seven almost every other uh line out of her mouth, she's invoking one of the seven, we see that she's really become much more pious, almost to the point of being sanctimonious. And in fact, in the inside the episode, the showrunners indicate that she's doing a penance of sorts for her outburst on Driftmark. So uh, that's what's behind her really increased religiosity. And let's leave um, the very concerned Damon and Rhaenyra Uh, where they are and check in with their kids. 
Yeah, the kids. We get a scene in the training yard with Jace and Luke. Despite the lads having lived at the Red Keep and trained at the yard some years before, Luke is feeling insecure about his place in the capital. In some respects, they're strangers in their own home, and you have to wonder what living away on Dragonstone did for the general perception of Rhaenyra's sons, given the rumours that they were sired by Harwin Strong. Was it a great mistake for Rhaenyra to live away and let Alicent's family get comfortable in the capital? Time will tell there. Luke is really feeling like an outsider, and he actually says, it's quite sad, he wishes he looked more Targaryen like Alicent's kids. You can see that the rumours of his illegitimacy, although quashed in official channels, are eating away at him and leading him to question his own self. Jace, though, seems more confident and doesn't care what anyone else thinks. That's what he says. He's the older brother and he's being characterised as the strong one of the pair. And I do apologise profusely for that choice of words. The last time we saw the boys training was when Kristen Cole was teaching Aegon to show no mercy to Jace. And eventually Harwin beat him up. Then in the last episode, we saw Luke blind Aemond in one eye. So there's groundwork being done and we sense that this rivalry is only going to grow. And here we get an update on Aemond. Not only does he now have the largest, most ferocious dragon under his saddle, he's becoming an excellent warrior as well, it seems. Kristen Cole has obviously been mentoring him. And now the pair are sparring very seriously with no armour or helms. Aemon evades Cole's Morningstar and eventually he wins the bout and then says he doesn't care about tourneys. So what's all the training for? What does he care about? He immediately turns to his nephews and invites them to train. And we can sense that Aemon, now sporting an eye patch over his scar, has not forgiven Rhaenyra's sons for what transpired between them in the last episode, of course. Aemon seems self-possessed, confident and very capable. And Luke and Jace look visibly intimidated. Considering that Cole has been training Aemond, we can guess that he hasn't been instilling a sense of honour and chivalry in him, and that his previous message of no mercy will more than likely have been at the heart of Aemond's training. With Jace and Luke seeming likeable characters, and Aemond's glare having all the warmth of a psychopath, we really feel the tension and the threat here. After we leave the training yard, Vaymond is allowed an audience alone with Alicent and Otto. Again, we see Alicent seated in Viserys' seat. She truly has become the crown, like Vaymond had said early on. Now that he's grown too ill and frail to sit in council or even on the throne itself, his wife has taken his place. Alicent confesses unease in this situation, showing that um, while she has gone along with her father's plans for years now, she's still has some trouble stomaching what she thinks they must do next, which is actually name Rhaenyra's children's bastards in a very public way for the first time. Otto reminds her that the realm requires strength, something that Lucerys allegedly cannot offer being a child. Vaiman adds that the new Lord of the Tides would be deeply indebted to the crown, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, 
considering Corliss is no doubt sympathetic to his grandsons and Lucerus would support his mother, Vaymond taking Driftmark and its fleet is really the only outcome in the succession crisis that, w- that weakens Rhaenyra and strengthens Aegon. Alicent seems trapped here. Uh, we get the sense that she's uncomfortable taking matters this far, uh, knowing that it will be against the will of Corliss and her husband, the king. Yet they're both abed and Otto will be the one presiding over things tomorrow. Despite all her implied power as queen, she feels powerless. I think that the framing of this scene is really creative in, in illustrating that, using the furnishings of the room to uh, frame Alison as though she's imprisoned both at the very start and at the end of the conversation. Great camera work as usual. Uh, the next scene is Rhaenyra and Rhaenys uh, meeting in the Godswood. Uh, you have to have a Godswood scene at the Red Keep. And this time it is the two princesses. Uh, they actually show up. It's uh, Reina, Rhaenyra, and Rhaenys at first after a uh, brief reunion of Rhaenys with her granddaughter. Rhaenyra asks uh, Reina to leave them alone so the princesses can talk. Uh, she wants to know why Rhaenys is in the capital at all, but kind of answers her own question by saying that she assumes it's going to be to advocate for herself. Which really isn't too far from the mark, because in her husband's absence, it is vitally important that Rainey's choose the correct place to stand, both for her own survival and that of her family. Rainey's ends up challenging Rhaenyra over Lenor, and we get to see Rhaenyra uh, finally. Uh, I'm sure this has been weighing on her for many years. They did talk about it back on Dragonstone uh, She can't tell her the full truth, but she at least gets to tell her a part of it. She swears that she, she says, I loved your son and swears she did not order his death and was not complicit in it. All true. Then she goes on to offer a double betrothal, Lena's daughters to Lena's two eldest sons. Rhaenyra knows that having Rhaenys' support could tip the scales her way since House Valerian united against Vaemon be painted as just a case of one man's kind of rogue ambition, whereas if all the family of the sea snake don't stand as one and they're all sort of going their own way, they risk fracturing the power of House Valerian, and that is very bad news for Rhaenyra. Rhaenys is very blunt and tells Rhaenyra, tomorrow the high towers land their first blow, they will force you to your knees, and I must stand alone. She's feeling distinctly the lack of her partner, Corlys, and even knowing what Corlys himself would do, she's faced with this very difficult decision. For all their similarities, these two princesses have been painted throughout the series so far as quite different, right from the very first episode. And now we see that they may actually be at odds, maybe not even on the same side. Rhaenys has a choice to make, Uh, Without her husband there to back her, it's very clear that she's struggling with the responsibility and the implications of acting in her own interest. She has to decide what that is. So she departs without committing, leaving a very visibly distressed Rhaenyra behind. And continuing with Rhaenyra, she visits her father in his bedchamber. Remember last week when Viserys called Alison Emma? Well, the first thing to note here that is that initially he calls Rhaenyra Alicent, a detail which becomes highly relevant later when Alicent visits at the end of the episode. 
Earlier in the season, we saw Viserys tell Rhaenyra about the Song of Ice and Fire prophecy that came from a prophetic dream experienced by Aegon the Conqueror. Here, Rhaenyra, who's not been having a great day, reminds Viserys that you told me it was our duty to hold the realm united against a common foe. And of course, the dream is referring to the White Walkers who attacked Westeros hundreds of years later in the main series. But there's no timestamp on prophecies, so Viserys doesn't know that this will all take place so far into the future. Rhaenyra says that rather than uniting the realm, Viserys insisting the succession went her way has in fact divided it. Now she's not sure she wants all of that power. Although we'll reach the corresponding scene with Viserys and Alicent later on in the episode, it is worth noting now that when he's mixing up conversations there and saying sorry to Alicent later, he's probably responding to these remarks here. Rhaenyra says if Viserys wants her to bear the burden of leadership, he should defend her here. And the fact that he later shows up at court says everything about his firm view on the succession going to Rhaenyra and her children. The scene ends with Rhaenyra crying and Viserys murmuring. And it is so heartbreaking to see that even when he's at death's door, the obligations of rule must be tended to. It speaks to how corrosive the Iron Throne is to whoever holds the power, especially when it's someone not really cut out for the role. Viserys' physical corruption is a very on-the-nose metaphor, and today it's a very uncomfortable one. Yeah, the, the next day, following that late-night visit, we see Grand Maester Orwile and some attending maesters treating Viserys. He really looks like death warmed over here. Truly a testament, I think, to the makeup and prosthetics teams for how real and just how gruesome he appears. In a slow, wheezing voice, he tells Otto that he wants to have a dinner. It's subtle, but Otto pushes back, reminding him it's morning. (laughs) Oh, you're confused. Whether Otto actually believes that Viserys is confused or if he just wants to misdirect or confuse the old man away from the idea is uncertain. However, there is some strength left in the king. He says that he wants the whole family to dine together, something that hasn't been done in ages. As Viserys is helped up, he groans in pain, and Otto demands that the maesters bring milk of the poppy. It reminds us of Littlefinger demanding milk of the poppy for Sweet Robin, using the medicine to control someone who he really owes his power to. Uh, But Viserys is an adult and can still verbalize his own wants to some degree, so he refuses. He says he doesn't want his mind clouded now, and we'll find out. Why in a minute? We then cut to Otto standing before the Iron Throne. He's really ready to formally hear the matter on the Valarian succession that he's already kind of figured out. This is meant to be political theater, of course, for Otto and Vaymond have, you know, made a closed door deal in, in a previous scene. Before taking the throne, he reminds the entire court that as hand, he speaks with the king's voice on this and all other matters. Uh, This is consistent with Fire and Blood, which states that his grace had lost all appetite and ruled from bed, if he could even rule at all. Most days he preferred to leave matters of state to his hand, Sir Otto Hightower. Otto did look pretty comfy up there on the Iron Throne, I must say. So the first petitioner is Sir Vaymond Valarian, uh, Corliss's younger brother. He starts with his little history lesson on the houses, two of the last remaining Valyrian lines found in Westeros. He mentions his history, time spent on Driftmark in service to his house, before coming to the true point. 
that he has true, unimpeachable Valarian blood in his veins. And Rhaenyra cannot abide this, interrupting to remind Vaemon that her sons also have that blood running through their veins through their deceased father, Laenor Valarian. She says if he cares about blood, he would not seek to supplant them, and frames Vaemon's claims as grasping. Queen Alicent interrupts her. She's dressed uh, again in those subdued clothing with prominent symbols of the faith, but notably that gown is still green, while Rhaenyra for the first time uh, is opposite her in that Targaryen black. And it feels a little bit courtroom in that moment, actually. But Vaemon uses that to turn and speak to Rhaenyra, being condescending and cruel. We get a bit of Aemon smirking at Jace and Luke here, too. Rhaenyra is now allowed her turn, and she starts her arguments, but is pretty immediately interrupted by an unexpected arrival. Yeah. Enter King Viserys. First of his name. Titles, titles, titles. When Rhaenyra visited her father during the night, she had told him that uh, his choice of her had divided the realm, and she begged him to set things right by showing his support if he still believed in her. And so when the king unexpectedly and very slowly walks into the throne room, it should be obvious that he heard her and that this is his response. And if there was any doubt, uh, the long look that he gives his daughter as he passes her on his way to the Iron Throne, speaks volume. It says, I heard you and I intend to set things right. Uh, Setting the tone really not only for this court session, but for the rest of the day as well. In fact, when the business at hand is concluded and he descends from the throne, we will hear him say to Alicent, I have to make it right. But first, he has to make it to the throne. Absolute kudos uh, to Viserys for apparently coming all the way from his chamber to the throne room under his own power, and also to Patty Considine for this fantastic uh, portrayal. In the last few steps, though, there, those are the hardest, and though he shakes off an attempt at assistance from one of his king's guard, when his brother moves up to help, he accepts him, and the look that passes between them speaks uh, just as much as the look between him and his daughter a moment earlier. Uh, This moment uh, when the rogue prince gently and humbly helps his obviously dying older brother to take his throne, uh, replacing his crown on his head, uh, was one of the most most moving scenes in the episode for me. Uh, This episode where Patty and Matt's portrayals of the sons of Balon the Brave moved me to tears more than once. Uh, we're reminded of an earlier scene where the brothers were reconciled after Damon returned from the Stepstones, offering his brother the crown that he had won there. And I was also poignantly reminded that the crown Viserys wears is the crown of their grandfather, Jaehaerys the Conciliator. Uh, and I think the symbolism of that as Viserys tries to reconcile the warring halves of his own family is quite potent. And we want to keep an eye on this and Uh, More on that in the spoiler section later on. This really, it it strikes me, is the most visible display of Viserys exerting his authority as king, possibly in the series to date. He declares himself confused as to why uh, petitions are being heard over settled succession. And there's a dual message here, since even in his decrepit state, Viserys knows that if Luke is challenged then so will Jace be, and by extension, so will Rhaenyra be. So in speaking of settled succession, he's speaking directly, not only to Vaemond Valerian, but for the first time, to the Greens. 
Regarding the issue of House Valerian, he immediately defers to Rhaenys, and in so doing, he gives her the opportunity to align House Valerian with her husband's wishes, as well as with her own family. As Viserys entered the throne room, we saw that uh, Rhaenys seemed quite moved by her cousin's effort and by the change in him, and also, uh, I think, maybe I was reading into it, but by his obvious devotion to his daughter and her children, and perhaps in that moment, she remembered that she is actually part of the House of the Dragon. Certainly, she decided that standing united against the Greens and their alliance with Vaymond is in her best interest, as she asserts Coilus's position and her support of it. She also announces those betrothals, publicly holding Rhaenyra uh, to that proposal uh, that had been made in private. And it's a fair conclusion. And Viserys declares that the matter is settled again. Yes, again. Which... News is news that Vayman doesn't enjoy. So when Viserys concludes that the matter of succession is resolved, Vaymond is seething. As we learned in the last episode, unlike his brother Corlys, he values blood over name and feels like House Valerian are being cheated out of their home. The problem for him is that King Viserys is never going to concede that his grandchildren were signed by Harwin Strong, and so Vaymond is fighting a losing battle that's very dangerous. Don't you dare tell me who deserves to inherit the name Valerian. A strong words to say to a king who holds the power to execute him. Then and there, really. So, Vaymond is the kind of person who cannot bite his tongue, and he pursues matters of honesty and integrity so fiercely that it gets him into trouble. On one hand, I can see his point of view, his pride of his blood and the history of his house is palpable, yet he's sort of committing suicide in this scene, really. I guess he'd rather die than face the reality of the king's decision, and yeah, in the end, that's exactly what happens. He begins to rant louder and louder before Damon nudges him into the final allegation that these children are bastards. This accusation is considered treason, and if the king were to allow comments like this, it would only serve to feed into the strong rumours, which again is ultimately calling into question his own succession. Viserys really had no choice but to declare he will have his tongue removed to defend the honour of his beloved daughter. Yet before Viserys can get to him, with his Valyrian steel blade, Viserys go, uh, sorry, Damon goes one step further and cuts his head in half. Uh, yeah, what a shocking moment that was. If that cut seemed unnaturally clean, remember that Damon wields Dark Sister, the storied Valyrian steel sword that once belonged to Visenya and was ultimately taken north of the wall by his great-grandson, great Bloodraven, by the time we get to the main series. In Fire and Blood, Vaymond was Corlys' nephew, and he was on Driftmark making his noise. Rhaenyra sent Damon to take his head, which he did, and his body was fed to Cyrax. So, in the books, a different version of events, but with similar results. Yeah, similar, but I had kind of hoped to see Cyrax in action there. <laughs> um, at least we got what is possibly one of the uh, funniest bits of dark humor yet in the series when Damon dryly remarks he can keep his tongue, which is about all that's left in Vaymond's head. 
We also wouldn't have gotten to see the uh, brief scene that follows of Rhaenys watching the Silent Sisters sew Vaemon's head back together if uh, he had been fed to Cyrax. So there's that. Uh, Rhaenys has an exchange with Maester Orwile about the ill luck of looking upon the face of death. He's encouraging her to kind of, you know, behave like a proper lady and leave the Silent Sisters to their work. But uh, this dragon princess is made of Valyrian steel. She tells him she's seen plenty of death and that the stranger cares little whether my eyes are open or closed. And I couldn't help but wonder what she was thinking about in this scene as she watches the body being prepared. Uh, she doesn't say much a- after that. Uh, it's really all just, you know, what's going on in her head and we're reading it on her face. You know, is she thinking about her own dead Valyrian children, of her husband whose fate she doesn't know yet? Does she have memories of her brother-in-law whose family home that she shared for several decades? Uh, is she thinking, I warned you this would happen because she did in that first scene. Uh, is she thinking of her own Targaryen family, of her father and her uncle, both dead before their time, uh, which led to so much of what's happening now and so many more uh, deaths besides? Is she remembering Vaemon's words about the calamities brought upon House Valerian by Corlys and his ambition and wondering if she made the right choice, affirming his wishes? Does Rainy see or have premonitions of the future? Uh, I saw all of that and more, a woman reflecting on her life, her family, and her choices. She's resolved on the one hand, but she's still worried. You could see the worry in her face about what the future uh, might bring. Uh, I think after an episode that could well have been titled The Choices of Rhaenys Targaryen for all the focus on her as the pivot point for House Valerian and in the power struggle between the Blacks and the Greens, This is how we leave her, in a reflective moment, wondering what's going to happen next. And as it happens, what happened next was exactly what the king wanted, a dinner. So we've seen a number of feasts in the series so far, but uh, none of them are as intimate as this one. Viserys has summoned his immediate family. All living Targaryens are present, except for Rhaenys and the very young children. And with the Initial framing of Alicent and Rhaenyra strongly resembling um, the Fire and Bloods illustration of the Feast of the Blacks and the Greens. And you have the two sides of the family arrayed on opposite sides of the table. We're not really sure how this is going to go. I mean, nobody looks very happy. Those two women sure don't look very happy. Uh, but the king arrives... The family is assembled, and it becomes clear that uh, Viserys has a lot to say. But first, Alicent prays. She prays for the family, and she prays for Vaemon Valerian, uh, which Damon sniggers and rolls his eyes about. Uh, then Viserys begins by toasting his grandsons, Jaceris and Lucerys, congratulating them on their betrothals to their cousins, and Luke on his reaffirmed status as the future Lord of the Tides. Aegon proves himself once again to be trash, mocking Jaceris and making rude and suggestive remarks to Bela, who shows herself to be very fierce and able to stand up for herself, uh, while Jace proves that he has class and the ability to rise above and be diplomatic. Viserys presents himself as a man, a father, a brother, a husband, a grandsire, who's nearing the end of his days and whose only wish is for his family to set aside their grievances for the sake of the crown, 
or for the sake of this man who loves them all so dearly and will not be with them much longer. He actually removes his golden mask and asks his family to see him as he is, his face scarred and rotting, missing an eye. Uh, He wants them to just appreciate the sacrifice that he's making in order to gather them together for this occasion. In the previous episode, he was full of righteous anger, commanding his family to get along and to love each other as their king. Here, he puts his weakness on display and asks them to do this for his sake as a man. This is literally his dying wish. And it's clear that the older adults in the room are moved, uh, though we'll see that doesn't necessarily carry over to the uh, younger generation. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, you know, throughout Viserys' words, the camera focuses heavily on the reactions of Damon, Rhaenyra, and Alicent, all of whom look somewhat guilty and cowed by his words. There's a lot of self-reflection going on, and it's Rhaenyra who first offers the olive branch, uh, ra- uh, standing to raise a toast to the queen. She praises Alicent's loyalty to the man that she essentially was made to marry, having unfailing devotion to Viserys despite her circumstances. Uh, that's me editorializing a little bit. Rhaenyra put it a little bit more nicely. Rhaenyra ends her toast uh, with an apology, and Alicent seems to be moved by this. Damon leans forward, showing he's a little surprised by this. Alicent then, in her own toast, focuses on their shared motherhood, not surprising for someone who has tied herself so closely to the mother above. Alicent ends her toast, saying that Rhaenyra will make a fine queen, and we get a quick surprised reaction from Otto. No doubt the Hand thought Alicent's sympathies towards Rhaenyra were long dead. Was this a show for Viserys or a hint at some uncertainties the queen has about putting Aegon forth as heir? Wouldn't necessarily blame her, uh, given yesterday. Speaking of Aegon, uh, his baiting of Jace once again shows the contrast between Aegon, wholly unkingly and unfocused, and Jace, who has been more properly raised to one day be king. Helena chimes in next, uh, muttering a quick prophecy about the beast beneath the boards. I know, Yoke Boy, you have some thoughts on this uh, for our spoiler section, so I'll uh, leave it there. there. There really isn't much reaction to this little line, and the princess jumps right to a toast about how marriage isn't that bad, casting a lot of shade on, again on her, her husband, Prince Aegon, in the process. Damon barks out a little laugh, and even Otto looks vaguely amused. Viserys then calls for music, and Jace, ever the gentleman, gets Lady Bela's go-ahead in offering Prince Helena a dance. Uh, We might remember that Rhaenyra once suggested a match between Jace and Helena as a uh, way of healing the rift in the family, so this may have been meant to be a vision of what could have been. 
it's really a very sweet moment and everyone at the table is enjoying themselves. Rhaenyra and Damon look very much in love. There's some cute moments with Luke and Reyna as well. Hell, even Otto looks like a human being for once. Uh, I, I hate to say it. It recalls the passage from Fire and Blood, though in that version it was actually Damon and Otto rather than Rhaenyra and Alicent giving the toasts. Um, so here's a little passage from that. Many declarations of love were made to the king's great pleasure. Prince Damon raised a cup to Sir Otto Hightower and thanked the, him for his leal service as hand. Sir Otto, in turn, spoke of the prince's courage, while Alicent's children and Rhaenyra's greeted one another with kisses and broke bread together at the table. We've got music, laughter, dancing. Everyone's happy. Their faces look more relaxed than we've ever seen them. I mean, I was particularly struck by people like Otto and Damon just looking like they're having a good time and they're happy. Uh, so it seems like there might be hope for peace in the House of the Dragon, or maybe at least a detente. Maybe everything could be okay, right? Yeah, no, n don't forget that this is George R. R. Martin's story. Uh, so as soon as Viserys leaves, the mood changes. I do like that they tempted us into thinking that things might be okay, just for, even if it was for 20 seconds, it was a good 20 seconds. I enjoyed the 20 seconds. So. <laughs> so the toasts continue. And with the king gone, some characters felt less obliged to keep up the tone of re reconciliation. Uh, Roast Pig is placed in front of Amond, And Luke couldn't help but snigger at the memory of him, Jason Aegon, giving a pig to Amond, called the Pink Dread to mock him for not having a dragon. Well, Sorry. it is pretty funny, Lady Wynn. I know you enjoyed that one. <laughs> I did. I've been laughing about it for two days. <laughs> one person who didn't find it funny, Lady Gwyn, was Amond. He seems like a humorless soul these days and doesn't like being the butt of jokes anymore. He's far too serious for that now. He toasts Rhaenyra's sons and calls them handsome and wise. And strong, with the emphasis on strong and props to the closed captioner who understood and capitalised the word strong in that sentence. Given that a fragile but seemingly heartfelt peace had just been established between Rhaenyra and Alicent, this taunt really breaks that peace. We're learning that even if the parents now try to work together to shore up these old wounds, the tensions between their children is simply too deep to be healed. These kids have grown up surrounded by this simmering rivalry and it's ingrained in their personalities now. Eamon seems to have trained and worked on himself, relishing the idea that he might one day get to base, get to best Jace or Luke. It doesn't seem like Eamon will be looking to befriend them or ally with them anytime soon. Maybe Gildane says it best in Fire and Blood, the sins of the fathers are oft visited on the sons. Wise men have said, and so it is for the sins of mothers as well. The enmity between Queen Alicent and Princess Rhaenyra was passed on to their sons, and the Queen's three boys, the Princes Aegon, Aemond and Daron, grew to be bitter rivals of their Valerian nephews, resentful of them for having stolen what they regarded as their birthright, the Iron Throne itself. So, 
repeating the strong taunt then leads to violence. Aegon smacks Luke's head off the table. Jace punches Aemond. Alicent tries to discipline him. It's all chaos breaking out. But we understand that Alicent is now powerless to contain these ill feelings in her children. For me, this is a great depiction of generational violence. Children who are born into this rivalry and now they, they know no other way. In the books, the parallel scene is very similar. Emily read a bit of the earlier scene, so let me read a bit more aloud. Mushroom tells us that Aemond One-Eye rose to toast his Valerian nephews, speaking in mock admiration for their brown hair, brown eyes and strength. I have never known anyone so strong as my sweet nephews, he ended. So let us drain our cups to these three strong boys. Still later, the full reports, Aegon the Elder took offence when Gisseris asked his wife Helena for a dance. Angry words were exchanged and the two princes might have come to blows if not for the intervention of the king's guard. Whether King Viserys was ever informed of these incidents, we do not know, but Princess Rhaenyra and her sons returned to their own seat on Dragonstone the next morning. So in both books and show, this tension in the feast leads to Rhaenyra taking her children back to Dragonstone, leaving Alicent and her contingent in the Red Keep, where of course they can call the shots. So what a fateful moment this is going to turn out to be. Indeed. As Damon uh, sends the children to bed, including the swaggering clone that he has in his nephew Aemond, Alicent crosses the room to speak to Rhaenyra. Otto again looks mildly alarmed by this, surely having thought all his indoctrination would have put a stop to any trace of love between his daughter and her childhood friend. Alicent grabs Rhaenyra's arm and holds it, both of them looking down. At first, I thought this was the same arm that Alicent cut into at Driftmark, but after replaying it a few times, it's not. Uh, her left arm is the one that gets cut, and Alicent holds her right arm here in this scene. Uh, regardless, I imagine they are both thinking about all that has transpired between them in that moment and many of the other moments they shared over the years. Rhaenyra says that she'll see the children home to Dragonstone before returning on Dragonback. This uh, calls back to the girls' earliest two scenes together, with Alicent watching Rhaenyra with Cyrax and later the princess saying that she wished that they could ride on Dragonback together. Uh, it feels like, for just a moment, perhaps, all could be set right between them. Alicent may finally see that Rhaenyra is capable of wisdom, forgiveness, humility, things that she values in leadership, and that things that her son, Aegon, clearly lacks. The scene ends with Alicent smiling, saying that she and the king would both really like that. Yeah. <laughs> and then all the smiles died. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> sad. Uh before we get to the final scene, though, there's a very brief scene. So it, out in the city uh, at Myceria's manse. Uh, so let's take a minute to just go through this. We haven't seen Myceria uh, on screen since episode five. Uh, I was just saying after last week's episode, I wonder where she had gotten off to. Uh, but here she is in her manse in the city on Rhaenys' Hill. And we see a hooded figure approach and... I can assure you, after watching the preview, I was sure this was going to be Damon in his murder hoodie uh, calling on his one-time lover. But it turns out it's actually Allison's servant, Talia, 
who we saw in that earlier uh, scene, bringing news to Lady Misery about all the goings on at the Red Keep that evening. So this is interesting because in previous episodes, we saw Miseria selling information to Otto Hightower, and here we see her presumably buying it uh, from a spy within the Red Keep. So I, I believe this is almost certainly setting her up as a source of information for Rhaenyra and Damon, but we shouldn't forget that she's apparently sold Damon out on two occasions that we know of. Uh, you know, Lady Misery's loyalty is probably only to herself. I think even in earlier episodes, we could have guessed that. Uh, we shouldn't forget it. We probably won't. Unfortunately, I have a bad feeling that Damon probably will. Uh, but we'll see what happens. And now let us move on to the final scene of the episode in Viserys's chamber. Yeah, a heartbreaking scene at the end here. The final scene in this episode is a big one for more reasons than one. We're in Viserys's bedchambers and he's not doing well. Being at the end of the episode, we sense he's on his way out of the story. But what will his final act be? Well, Alicent comes to comfort him and gives him Milk of the Poppy. We know from the previous scenes that Milk of the Poppy dulls his pain, but also clouds his thinking and judgment. When he wanted to use his brain and resolve an issue and be sharp, he purposefully didn't take it, but here he's drinking it. So he says he's sorry to Alison, and we realise that he thinks that he's talking to Rhaenyra and is continuing the conversation that they'd had together recently, which I analysed a little bit before. Alison, though, genuinely doesn't realise that Viserys is mixed up and she believes he's talking to her. Already we have a major confusion and cross wires and it's going to get worse. Rhaenyra had asked Viserys if he believed the prince that was promised prophecy that had been kept in secret between heir and king was true. When he, in this scene, mentions Aegon, meaning the conqueror who saw the prophecy in a dream, Alicent thinks she's talking about her son. There's a callback to Viserys talking to Alicent about his dream of his son sitting the Iron Throne in episode two, and they're clearly communicating at cross purposes. But Viserys is too sick and sedated to understand what's happening. Given Alicent has never heard anything about the Conqueror's prophecy of a dark force emerging from the north, she can only try to contextualise the words that she does understand. Prince, Aegon, uniting the realm, you are the one, you must do this. When she says, I understand, my king, we know that Alicent has interpreted the drugged-up ramblings of a dying man who couldn't even comprehend who he was talking to as a cue to change the royal succession. This means the bloody succession struggle that is bound to follow is in part rooted in a major, major misunderstanding. And for those who believe that Alison knew full well what was going on and was simply being manipulative and hearing what she wanted to hear, Gita Battelle, the director of this episode, had this to say. The intention was that she genuinely thought he was telling her that her son was going to be the heir and should be the heir. Patel then talks of Alicent's more innocent side that we saw early in the season. So... 
In the dinner scene, Alison did seem to acknowledge Rhaenyra as heir, but this misunderstanding changes everything. Given Viserys is about to die and there's no chance for him to straighten this out, Viserys has just inadvertently set the realm against itself. Alison is going to think Aegon is the heir and Rhaenyra thinks she's the heir. And even the most unsullied show watcher knows that this is going to lead to mayhem. Should Alicent be putting stock in the last breath of a dying man who's on Milk of the Poppy? Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Book readers seem divided as to whether or not making the final spark of this impending conflict due to a misunderstanding of prophecy is being a, a satisfying addition in the show canon because it doesn't happen in the books like that but of course you don't know the full details in the books because it's told by maesters so it's very limited while i understand everyone's opinions here and yeah i do see both sides both points of view i would say that it does give an extra layer of complexity to alison and her cause and it does carry the well-established theme that prophecies are a dangerous game rather well that we see in the main series and that's very george R. R. martin Alison leaves a husband seemingly convinced that he had just reversed everything he had said and done earlier in the day and we see Viserys's final moments believing that in everything he'd accomplished that day including his final conversation which he believed to be with Rhaenyra he had reaffirmed his wishes and settled the question of succession again he seems to relax for a moment. Possibly he's content in his mind that he's done his duty to ensure a peaceful transition. And there he is at peace. And then he dies alone. Moment of silence for Viserys. Earlier in the season, Viserys had expressed quite a bit of concern for his legacy. Uh, he had a, a scene where he spoke with his then uh, hand, Lionel Strong, about it. He had inherited a peaceful and prosperous realm from his grandfather, uh, the questions surrounding Jaehaerys's succession notwithstanding. Uh, no doubt with that in mind, the, that is, the questions about succession, once he had decided that Rhaenyra, his only child with his beloved first wife Emma, would be his heir, he never wavered during his lifetime despite years of pressure from his second wife and her family, and no doubt quite a few of his lords as well. Uh, though Viserys initially rejects the idea that Targaryens are closer to gods than men, he very much seems to embrace the idea of absolute kingship, that is, that the king's word is the law. So when Vaymond Valerian spoke of centuries of tradition, he might have been referring to the Valerian succession and the maybe even the rights of sons over daughters and trueborn children over bastards, but he was certainly not speaking of centuries of tradition of the succession of the Iron Throne because there has been very little precedent in the handful of generations since the conquest. And even that was muddied by an earlier conflict between rival branches, which is the exact reason why Jaehaerys called the Great Council of 101. Uh, in spite of being characterized as amiable and eager to please in fire and blood, characteristics that really did get carried through to the show, uh, even with the much greater complexity that House of the Dragon brought to the character of Viserys, 
in spite of those things, Viserys was also said to be very stubborn and very single-minded, especially on the issue of his succession. So rather than call a council, as his grandfather did, to hear the opinions of his lords, he summoned his lords to court to present them with his choice of heir and require their oaths in support of her. And this is likely because he knew that his choice would be controversial to many, especially in light of that recent council. And, you know, to be fair, Viserys would probably argue that the Great Council of 101 was intended to decide a single issue, not to set a permanent precedent. And much like uh, England's Magna Carta in real life, I think any supposed precedent set by the decision of the Great Council was expected to be and would be swiftly discarded, only to be reasserted by successive generations who found it to be in their interest uh, until it could legitimately be called a precedent. Uh, Even then, there were those who would probably argue about royal prerogative and the divine right of kings to rule as they see fit, but all of that is a discussion for another day. Viserys Targaryen, as portrayed by Paddy Considine and the writers of House of the Dragon, was a very conflicted king. His desire to please, to be loved and popular, is evident throughout these eight episodes, and is something he clearly passes on to his daughter as well. The opposite side of that coin of kingship, though, is ruling from a position of strength, uh, a strength that inspires some amount of fear in your subjects. That's shown in his brother Damon, who will be his daughter's consort. And in fact, if Rhaenyra's succession had gone or was going to go unchallenged, you know, it, this might not have been a bad combination. Uh, in spite of probably being unsuited for kingship, though, Viserys shouldered the burdens of being the king quite willingly, taking it very seriously, especially the part about Aegon's prophecy, which had been passed down to him when he became his grandfather's heir. And given his intentions regarding this succession, where Viserys really went wrong, uh, in my opinion, is in remarrying at all after Emma's death. Uh, It's Emma's death itself represented a very problematic decision that he made. Uh, And after the fact, he compounds uh, his decision-making process by getting remarried, which opens the door to be challenged on this decision of naming Rhaenyra as his heir. So having done so, and now he's got uh, this new uh, wife and second family and sons, I think he really failed in the raising of those sons. He could have been more assertive with Alicent and with those boys had he taken, you know, more of a hand in raising them rather than leaving them to just be uh, influenced by their mother and grandfather's assumptions about Rhaenyra's intentions towards them. The things might have gone very differently. Similarly, uh, had he acted immediately to remove Kristen Cole after he murdered the bannerman of a guest at a royal feast violating guest right and probably his vows as a knight. You know, maybe his sons wouldn't have been instilled with a violent hatred for their young nephews from an early age in the training yard. And perhaps his plan to have them raised together in the Red Keep would have actually borne the fruit of brotherly love that he so desired to see rather than a bitter rivalry, which was very, very much uh, encouraged by Kristen Cole. 
Even uh, much later, had there been some consequences following the brawl at Driftmark, and I'm not talking about, uh, you know, an eye for an eye kind of consequences. I mean, uh, you know, with the adults, particularly with the queen who revealed herself to be willing to countermand the king's orders and order a Knight of the King's Guard to follow her own orders instead uh, to attack one of the royal heirs in the name of vengeance. Uh, things might have gone a little differently if he had had some sort of firm consequences in that moment. So he had a lot of opportunities to change things, to make things better. In the end, he was a flawed king, a good man who loved his family, but one of those parents who was too soft. He loved his family too much to kind of take the difficult positions and make those tough decisions. He was haunted by the responsibilities conferred on him by kingship, and he never really effectively asserted himself in public as king until that final session of court where he declared the matter of the succession of, of Driftmark and by extension of the Iron Throne to be settled. But unfortunately for him, at that point, it was too late. Uh, he didn't realize it, but the seeds of civil war had been sown early in his reign, and the sins of the mothers, as we heard earlier from Gildane, had been passed on to their children. The stage is set for what comes next, and uh, we're going to close our analysis with these final words from Fire and Blood. Viserys of House Targaryen, first of his name, King of the Andals, the Rhoynar, and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, and Protector of the Realm, closed his eyes and went to sleep. He never woke. He was 52 years old and had reigned over most of Westeros for 26 years. Then the storm broke and the dragons danced. Excellent. And I think Paddy Considine did such an amazing job through the whole season from episode one, showing this physical decline. And, you know, this talk of Emmys and well there's other great performances out there but I think a lot of House of the Dragon fans are going to be rooting for Paddy Considine uh, I heard that George R. R. Martin texts Paddy and said your Viserys was better than my Viserys so coming from the top you know it, it, it's uh, it's sad to see him go but it does set up you know an epic battle to come Okay, so that's the end of our left to right analysis, but stay with us because we've got some fun sections and then we're going to talk some spoilery topics because we were holding some things back. Why don't we jump in with the first of our featurettes, Dragon Watch. Lady Gwyn, what was Dragon Watch like today? Uh, this is the first uh, D-list hot D in the season. <laughs> Uh, except those three eggs. Um, so we, we had this eggs Damon collected at the very beginning. Actually, we only saw one of them. He said there were three, but there, we only saw that one. Although we should not forget, as always, the Targaryen habit of equating themselves with dragons, in which case this episode was full of dragons. <laughs> yeah, let's not forget about the dragons on Emma's dress as well. That was awesome. I really just love the costuming of this episode. This is an iconic dress moment. So even if it is taking the place of actual dragons. I did like it. It did remind me of Alien when he's he's in there with, you know, the egg and it's all gloopy. I, re I don't know why. I just really love that scene. 
being a fan of uh, Alien, yeah, it did remind me of that. So why don't we do Champ or Chump? Each week we name, uh, it's lighthearted by the way, guys. We name our champ and we name our chump the best and the worst of the week. Why don't we start with a champ? Emily, who's your champ of the week? Okay, since we can't give it to actors, uh, so I can't give it to Patty, I think I have to give it to Damon this time. Uh, that mountain climb into the dragon's eggs uh, that we were just mentioning was a strong start, but he's cunning in conversation with Alicent. His moment with Viserys helping him up to the throne, which I guess the crown falling off was like completely ad-libbed, showed that after everything, he still loves and supports his brother, the king. Uh, and then, you know, beheading the man who calls his stepson's bastard and insults his wife. Even Aemond agrees. Damon is champ. So that leaves the chump. Lady Gwyn, what have you got? Well, <laughs> couldn't you guess? Uh, my chump of the week is Aemond for spoiling, <laughs> for spoiling a perfectly nice family dinner with his stupid toast. Also for appearing to think that he could... Um, cosplay his uncle as i've seen it referred to various places uh, and sort of kind of square off with him i don't know what he was going for there uh, i felt like damon definitely sized him up and was not all that impressed and more likely resigned that he's gonna have to deal with this kid one day um you know he's definitely trouble uh, Eamon's undoubtedly fun to watch but in this episode uh, he has big chump energy I actually don't see that going away anytime soon. So, Why don't we talk about things that we wanted to discuss, but because of the spoiler policy and trying to be inclusive to people that haven't read the books, we couldn't say what was on our minds. So Lady Gwynne, take it away. Spoilers all books. Okay, spoilers all books, guys. Heads up to anyone. Tune out if you, don't want, if you haven't read the books and you don't want to be spoiled for the future of... House of the Dragon. Okay, Lady Wynne, why don't you tell us what spoilery topics are on your mind today? Well, I have a couple things, but uh, I want to preempt my spoiler topics with a, a sort of a, a news flash. This just in, because last week we talked about Viserys and Alicent's youngest son, Daron, and how it was starting to look like a remote possibility of him being included in the show because he hasn't even been so much as mentioned. Well, just today... George published on his Not A Blog confirming that Daron will be included in season two. So uh, maybe he'll still get a mention in one of the episodes. We still have two episodes yet to go in this season. Um, so we'll see. But yes, we don't lose hope for Daron. And more importantly, his dragon to Sarion, I think, is probably what people were more upset about. Uh, for what it's worth, George also commented that the full story of the Dance of the Dragons will take four seasons of 10 episodes, that's right, 40 episodes, to tell. So not sure with that if he's saying this is what I want to happen or if he's actually confirming that we're going to get four seasons. But that's what he said. He said what he said. So let us move on from that. You can find the full post on Nodblog if you are interested in reading more. And we retweeted it. So links there if you would like uh now getting into the spoily spoilery uh topics for this episode i'm going to start us off with an observation regarding the crown of king jaharis which we see on viserys's head throughout the season when the green council crowns Aegon 
They will choose to symbolically use the crown of Aegon the Conqueror. But Rhaenyra has her loyalists in the city, one of whom is Stefan Darklin, who we saw in this episode, uh, and at least one of the royal stewards who together make a daring escape to Dragonstone. Here's a quote from Fire and Blood. Uh, They brought with them a stolen crown, a band of yellow gold ornamented with seven gems of different colors. This was the crown King Viserys had worn and the old King Jaehaerys before him. When Prince Aegon had decided to wear the iron and ruby crown of his namesake, the conqueror, Queen Alicent, had ordered Viserys' crown locked away, but the steward entrusted with the task had made off with it instead. Ooh, go steward. So, days later, Damon will place that crown on his wife's head, mirroring the scene in that we saw in this episode in which he returned it to his brother's own head. Uh, It says in Fire and Blood, 300 sets of eyes looked on as Prince Daemon Targaryen placed the old king's crown on the head of his wife, proclaiming her Rhaenyra of House Targaryen, first of her name, Queen of the Andals, the Rhoynar, in the First Men. So how the show will choose to handle getting the crown to Dragonstone with multiple loyal characters still at court, including potentially Sir Harold Westerling and that Sir Stephen Darklin, who did finally have a speaking part in this episode. Uh, That really remains to be seen, but seeing Damon place the crown on Viserys' head has convinced me that they are going to stick uh, to that detail at least. I felt like they were very much reminding us that this crown uh, existed there. So, and speaking of loyal characters in the city, Rhaenys has just declared her support for Rhaenyra, and presumably she remains uh, in King's Landing as well. In Fire and Blood, Princess Rhaenys plays a major role in the Black Council, being the person who points out the Black superiority in dragon numbers and enumerates them to emphasize their value in the conflict to come. She says, find riders to master Silverwing, Vermithor, and Sea Smoke, and we will have nine dragons against Aegon's four. Mount and fly their wild king, Kin, and we will number twelve, even without Stormcloud, Princess Rhaenys pointed out. That is how we shall win this war. And one of the things I wondered in her final scene in this episode is if she was contemplating the potential need for her to take Maelise to war at some point and what that might mean for her and her family. And we'll definitely be talking more about the Black Council over the next couple of weeks. So let's switch up our colors and look at the greens. Well, we saw some new faces on the small council in recent episodes, and I wanted to spend a little time setting them up properly, given the massive role they'll play not only next week, but in the war to come. I won't cover their whole histories, just give some interesting bits coming up, and I will skip our friends the Hightowers as they get plenty of our attention already. First up is Grand Maester Orwell, played by Kurt Egwin. Uh, this new-ish Grand Maester replaced the incompetent and misogynistic Grand Maester Melos after the show's time jump. He was chosen as Grand Maester by the Conclave of Maesters in Old Town. Remember, this is where House Hightower rules. It's said that under his care, Viserys did regain some vigor. I wouldn't say vigor in the show so much as I'd say he prolonged the life of a man who looked to be on death's door years ago. Orwell is one of the primary sources for much of the Dance of the Dragons and Fire and Blood, so while we haven't heard too much of him uh, on the show so far, much of what we knew of the dance in the books is colored or comes from his opinions. He presents himself as a voice of reason, 
being someone that reminded the council of Rhaenyra's place as heir, and who later counsels Aegon II to send terms to his half-sister. But it is hard to say how much of that was the Grand Maester trying to portray himself in a favorable light, given what came later in the dance. Next up, we have Sir Tylan Lannister, Master of Ships. He uh, is played by Jefferson Hall. Jefferson Hall also portrays Tylan's twin brother, Jason. As mentioned before, Tylan seems to carry a grudge towards Rhaenyra and her side after she rejected his twin's proposal of marriage many years ago. He is staunchly on Team Green, as we already saw in this episode. Uh, We'll see him move into the role of Master of Coin in the future, something Lannisters know plenty about, and become a troublesome thorn in the side of the Blacks when they try to find the crown's gold later in the war. Lord Jasper Wilde is next, uh, known as the Master of Laws, portrayed by Paul Kennedy. A new face on the council, Lord Jasper is a Stormlander lord who is oft called Iron Rod due to his inflexible, unbending interpretation of the law or the stiffness of his member, if you believe Mushroom. Iron Rod sided with Aegon, citing the Great Council of 101 as precedent for favoring the male claimant over Viserys' stated wishes. He remained a staunch supporter of the Greens for the first year of the war till he lost his life for this loyalty, insisting up to his death that a king's son must come before a daughter. And lastly, we have Lord Lyman Beesbury, Master of Coin, portrayed by Bill Patterson. Beehive, rise up. Lord Beesbury is the oldest member of the council uh, with a longer tenure than Otto. He is the only lord of the council who we saw swear fealty to Rhaenyra as heir early on. Um, Many of the other lords were too young for this, and it was, you know, their forebears who did so. Despite evidence of some memory issues throughout the show, uh, Lord Lyman has not forgotten. He's considered the primary dissenter at the upcoming Green Council, though Orwell will have us believe he also brought forth Rhaenyra's claim. And as we'll see in the next episode, he'll pay for that loyalty dearly. Expect me to be pouring one out for my main man, Lyman, next Sunday. That's a good hook for next week when we're going to see the factions really crystallize in the scramble after Viserys' death. And my spoilery topic, you might have noticed I've done a lot of the prophecy. Well, I can't get enough of this stuff, so I'm going to stay with the prophecy stuff. Uh, this week, it seems like every week there's just a little bit that, you know, and it, it, it feeds the imagination of the fandom and everyone goes wild about these things. So I like to talk about it. This week, we got another little bit of prophecy from Helena. She seems to be a dragon dreamer with glimpses of the future. In previous weeks, we've heard her muttering about Aemond needing to lose an eye to get a dragon, which came true. Then last episode, there was a line about a hand weaving a thread of green and black, which presumably is about the greens versus the blacks. That will be coming into fruition very soon. In this episode... Helena, just before making a toast, whispered something else under her breath. I do love the way they're just edging these bits of prophecy in there. She said, beware the beast under the boards. So I don't know what the fandom consensus. I'm sure there's many good ideas. I think one idea that I've seen that I probably agree with is this could be referring to a despicable attack by Blood and Cheese book readers 
are not going to forget this one in a hurry. We've seen several rats in the Red Keep and presumably at some stage we'll see rat, rat catchers employed to deal with them. One of them will be Cheese, who with his partner in crime, Blood the Butcher, will infiltrate the Red Keep and slay Helena's son, Prince Jaharis. So the interesting thing here, I think, if Beware the Beast under the boards is really referring to blood and cheese if that detail is correct then helena is in effect she's making a prophecy about her own future and her own downfall and trauma really so presumably she has no idea what significance might be attached to the dragon dreams that she's having given helena seems like a sweet character less affected by the rivalries i think we can all expect to be devastated when the beasts come out from under the boards Okay, so we're going to leave it there. I want to say a big thank you to our recurring guest, Emily. It's really not easy to be a guest on Radio Westeros because we have to do a lot of preparation to do a presentation like this. And Emily is always there and she's always, you know, getting everything absolutely perfect. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. <laughs> you, you can follow Emily on Twitter at, at Emily of the Eerie. You can follow us at Radio Westeros, come and give us a follow. We we post memes and a lot of fun things like that. Thank everyone for tuning in and watching. Same time next week, there'll be another great episode, I'm sure of that, and we can analyse it and re-experience it together. And let's lead out Lady Gwyn with a final thank you to our Castle Steel and Valyrian Steel patrons. Thank you, everyone. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons. Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, Marge of the Mage, David, Dean, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sothorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And our Castle Steel patrons, AJ, Aegon the Sixth, the only Arsling you need, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashenot Yara, Oakenfist, Pran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Brendan B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarion, The White Storm, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greycard, Julie Bath of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Liston, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Mats, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Irick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, 
Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Sherry, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hama Helmuth the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Warren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioestros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you all again next week. Bye for now. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.